There is a movie called Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Any of you have seen that movie? He's playing actually the part of a real-life person, Frank Abagnale, an infamous real-life con artist. And as a young man, Frank, he decides he wants to be an airline pilot. So he dresses up like a high school student and asks an airline pilot if he can interview him. The pilot happily agrees and answers Frank's questions, this interested student, student about technical info, pilot lingo, and then shows him the two things that every airline pilot must carry in order to fly, an airline personnel badge and an FAA license. Now Frank acts really impressed and he asks if he can make a copy of the license. And the pilot laughs because he says, well, the one I'm using has been expired for three years and no one has noticed. So he figures, I'll get a new one. He tells him, you just keep this. Having no idea that Frank is gathering all that he needs so that he can pass himself off as an airline pilot, which he eventually does. Frank never went to flight school, yet he is soon living the life of a pilot no one being the wiser. <clears throat> now Tom Hanks is also in this movie and he stars as Carl Hanratty, an FBI agent trying to catch some mystery man who is forging airline payroll checks. When Carl closes in on this mystery man, Frank, and meets him face to face, you know what Frank does? Completely fools Carl into thinking he's also a Secret Service agent after the same guy. Carl is completely fooled because Frank seems like the real deal. The rest of the movie is Frank continuing his mimicry. He can't be an airline pilot anymore because the jig was up there, so he next impersonates a doctor, later a prosecutor, each time learning how to talk and to appear the part, and fooling many folks, and it seems even including himself, along the way. Of course, he eventually gets caught and he has to pay the consequences. Today we return to James. And James, the apostle, is better at Car than Carl Hanratty at identifying a phony. You see, James is concerned in the passage we're about to look at that we not only profess, but that we possess true and saving faith. And James is going to give us four scenarios and six questions that will catch us if we do not have the faith that saves, true faith. Now, James is not wanting to catch us because he wants to take us down. Rather, James, if we remember from chapter 1, has been repeatedly telling us that we are prone to being self-deceived. James is actually asking questions that any kind pastor will ask who loves his people. And he wants us to know for sure that we not only profess, but that we possess faith because the stakes are much, much higher than going to jail. And I'm so thankful for James' loving probing because our eternal destiny depends on whether you and I are the real deal. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for bringing us to your word once again. We ask and pray that uh, you will speak to us. And Lord, help us to see Jesus and help us to hear his voice, that we may follow him wherever he leads us. Be with us now and send your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our sermon text is James 
chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Now hear the word of our God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that a faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is not justified by works. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I know we're returning to James after a little bit, so it's good to reacquaint ourselves with this letter. It's written by James, an apostle and the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. James came to faith in his brother after Jesus was raised from the dead. At that point, James realized that Jesus had a different father, (laughs) God Almighty in the resurrection. And James realized that Jesus had died on the cross because James was a sinner. And James repented of his sins, believed in his brother, and he had a radical conversion. And I do mean radical. Former agnostic James would become pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Jerusalem. And he wrote this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion after many of them had to flee Jerusalem when the persecution of Christians came. God allowed this persecution because it was actually part of God's plan to spread the gospel to the nations. And the gospel in James' day has spread already. It's starting to spread like gangbusters. That God sent his son to pay our debts. And folks everywhere, pagans, are coming to faith in Jesus. They're being set from sin, set free from shame. Of course, though, we know the devil is not just going to roll over. The devil begins counterattacks. On one front, the devil attacked the gospel with the lie of legalism. Okay, Jesus saved you by grace, but now you have to finish what Jesus started by your own law keeping. My faith in Jesus plus my good works equals my salvation. And legalism, well, it'll make you a weary wreck from trying to do enough good to qualify or the other alternative, it'll make you a self-righteous snob as you look down on all the bad people out there. That's what legalism does. Now on the other front, the devil attacked with the lie of lawlessness, licentiousness. Basically, sin all you want. Okay, 
Jesus saved you by grace and his grace covers all your sins. So feel free now to live however you want. My faith in Jesus alone equals salvation. He's my savior, but I'm still Lord of my life. I can do whatever I want. And see, that's good for me. And it's good for Jesus too. I can sin so that grace can abound. You see, for every cartload of sin that I bring in, Jesus brings in two cartloads of grace to cover it. Jesus' grace actually becomes more impressive than where I sin. Isn't this a good deal? Do you see how clever Satan is? He can't stop the truth once it's out there. So he tries to distort it on two different fronts. And that is why God raised up two generals to guard the gospel on these two fronts. God raised up the general Paul to fight against legalism from adding our law-keeping to God's grace. Paul would write, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3.28 You are saved by faith in Christ alone, not by any good works that you can then boast in once you get to heaven. And God also raised up General James to guard against lawlessness, adding lawlessness, our lawlessness, to God's grace. You'll see that James writes in verse 24 here, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Faith alone saves, but the evidence of your faith is the works that follow along behind. In other words, see faith as the engine, but there's a caboose of good works always following along behind. Now, there have been some who have argued that James and Paul contradict each other. Actually, Martin Luther, he struggled with the letter of James. Now, Luther grew up in a world where it was endless rites and rituals, superstition. This was the Roman Catholic Church. And he felt so much guilt because he actually took very seriously the perfection that God required. So when Luther read Paul's letter to the Romans and God opened his eyes, he was blown away by God's grace in Christ. That he was forgiven and united by faith to Christ. And he saw that his works contributed nothing. This actually then became the catalyst, right, for the Protestant Reformation. But Luther failed to see that James is not contradicting Paul. It's not faith plus works that saves. It's faith that works that saves. Works are a necessary consequence of faith. You see, workless faith is worthless faith. Workless faith is worthless faith. And that is why James is going to give us four case studies to help us see what true faith is. So let's see case study number one, the response to a poor brother or sister. What good is it, my brothers, James writes, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Now you recall early in this chapter, James had warned against partiality, against favoritism. Christians are to love their neighbors as themselves, as they hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christians become judges with evil thoughts, they actually become liable to judgment themselves. And James, a loving pastor, had to shred this sense of false security. As the church is ever in need of mercy, so the church then must also show mercy to everyone else out there. So James asks three questions here. He asks, 
What is the benefit of a faith profession that has no evidence? Second question literally says, faith can't save them, can it? Flash the pilot license, does that mean liftoff? <laughs> James says, true faith meets the needs of the poor. It does not say by a prayer, be well and fill them, then walking on. True religion, remember from chapter 1, cares for brothers and sisters in need. I remember walking into church once and seeing a sister who was struggling with some packages at the car. I slowed to kind of evaluate the situation, but I didn't really stop moving. And I remember my wife noticed my hesitation. She gave me an elbow and says, go see if she needs a hand. My wife was actually encouraging me to live out my faith. My look of concern and my slow pace meant nothing. True concern has hands and feet. If all I do is pretend like I'm concerned and do nothing when I'm able to help, James says that my concern is fake. Friends, we cannot profess the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ while ignoring the needy. Why not, Joel? Because Jesus didn't. Jesus saw us in our helpless condition. He saw us with all of our burdens and not being able to manage them. And he left heaven to become the bread of life, to feed dying men, to take their burdens from them. And he was stripped even of his own garments so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. And while we remain needy ourselves, we are empowered to help others. We've been given the Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit who empowers us. We're the most powerful people walking the planet because we have God Almighty dwelling in us. We can show the world Jesus Christ, not only in our profession, but by our deeds of love and willingness to give. Why wouldn't we want to? Because we've been given so much by our Lord Jesus. And here's the remarkable truth. When we care for brothers and sisters, we don't merely show them Christ. We actually get to care for Christ, his body. Remember Jesus' parable about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, 31 to 46? Jesus speaks in that parable of a day when he's going to return with all the angels and all the people will be separated into two groups. Both groups will actually profess Jesus is Lord. But only the group on the right will Jesus say to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now this group, they hear this, and they're really surprised and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you in sick or in prison and go and visit you? And Jesus replies in verse 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. The other group of professing believers, they're told to depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why, Joel? That's harsh. Because they didn't invite the stranger in, clothe the needy, visit the sick, or prison. They were professors, but they were not possessors. My friends, let us let the Spirit direct our actions of, to love 
and to furnish evidence of true faith. When that spirit is prompting your heart to go help someone, don't ignore it. Follow that prompting and help and help others. Our works do not save us, but a faith that saves will be working. So let's not find ourselves DOA when we stand before the judge, because as James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's move on to case study number two, demon faith. Demon faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This passage kind of tells me that the modern world is not so different from the ancient world. This sort of thinking is common in our day, right? Our culture likes options. Fries or onion rings? Super solid. It's your choice. Ford or Chevy? Either vehicle will get you to your destination. And same with religion, right? That's what they're telling us today. But James says this is not how it works. God doesn't say, choose your way. Pick your own way to be saved. You can choose the faith way or you can choose the work way. James says no. I fear at times that some simply think that being a Christian is about doing good. And others, uh, they make a decision at one point, knowing what to confess, but neither of those is the saving gospel. We don't get the cross if we choose a faith way that makes no difference in how we live. We don't get the works way. How about the works way that says God sent his son to die? Oh, but that's not necessary for me. I'll get there on my own. You imagine standing before God the Father saying, Oh, I know you sent your son to die a horrible death and everything else, but I thought I would just rather do it my own way. Would you want to stand before God the Father and say that? This is why James trains his guns on the faith professor. What does James mean when he says, you believe that God is one? This is because all Orthodox Jews in James' day, they would confess the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.24. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what he's quoting here. James is saying, oh, you believe that God is one? Wonderful! So do the demons. Actually, read about this account in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 24. We read, when a man possessed by a demon, he says, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know what James is saying? That demon there, he's clearly a monotheist with orthodox theology. <laughs> he's confessing Jesus is God, right? But where, what's the demon's destination? You see James' point? James is saying that one who makes a faith profession but has no fruit, their profession is actually worth less, less than demons. What do you mean, James? At least the demons have an active response following their faith profession. They shudder. They do something. If we have faith, we should be following with works. And this is scary. This should cause us to shudder. Friends, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 15, 13, 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail to pass the test? You fail the test? 
what Paul is saying, what James is saying, is we need to be examining ourselves, looking at our lives to see if we're in the faith. Not because we're neurotic, but because we're serious about faith that bears works, faith that bears fruit for Jesus Christ. Because we want to live our lives. We want to appreciate, show God our appreciation for all the wonderful things he has done in saving us. Jesus came and died on the cross to set us free to glorify God. That is the purpose of our salvation. So let's move on to case study number three, Abraham's obedience. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And I love this. And he was called a friend of God. Pastor James starts kind of harshly there at first, right? You foolish person. But I'm just struck by how he lands. You can be a fool with fake faith, or you can be a friend of God, of Almighty God, like Abraham. I was actually thinking, I think I would like to see that on my tombstone. Joel Irvin, friend of God. <laughs> how would you like that? Jamie Irvin, friend of God. Gloria Kling, friend of God. Now, there's some dis. <clears throat> James is saying that it's attempt. It is that it is attainable by simply believing God, and that is accounted to you as righteousness. That's James' point here. But what is James saying? What is he meaning when he says that Abraham was justified by works? This is a challenging passage here. This is where there's some who say he's disagreeing with Paul. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But James says here, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What gives? James is aware that the passage about Abraham from Genesis 15 actually teaches justification by faith. We are declared to be in right standing with God from the moment we first believe. The moment you first believe in Jesus, you are right with God. Abraham looked at the stars. He believed God's promise. And at that moment, he was justified and never became more justified. Justified. But Jane's point is that Abraham's faith demonstrated that it wasn't just a profession, but a possession by his works. His works confirmed God's declaration that <laughs> he was a friend of God. His works completed his faith, showing it to be genuine. Another way to see it is that the offering of his son in that Abraham's faith matured. It blossomed. You remember how James actually began his letter? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is saying Abraham's faith flowered. It matured. It became perfect. Perfect. Now I shudder to think about what Abraham was willing to do because he loved God so much. Imagine sacrificing your only child. 
I mean, Abraham and Sarah, childless for all those years, all those years, and then boom, God performs a miracle. Isaac was the apple of Abraham's eye. How he must have loved this boy that he waited all these years to have. And yet Abraham trusted God so much that he could take his precious child and offer him back to God. I think Abraham's commitment can lose its shock value because we know the story so well. But Abraham, his faith flowered at this moment when he offered up his son. And what a beautiful picture we have. Here is living faith that proves that we're friends with God. Yes, there is only one Abraham called to such a task. God has never asked anyone else to do that. But nonetheless, this should cause us to examine ourselves to see, do you have any Isaacs in your life that you would be unwilling to sacrifice for God? God, who is your best friend? Abraham's obedience is held up as clear proof that Abraham was not merely a professor, but a possessor of the real deal, genuine faith. And that brings us to case study number four, Rahab's risk. Abraham's obedience, and now we see Rahab's risk. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? I'll just pause there for a second. Isn't it interesting to have Rahab sit alongside Abraham, the father of our faith? I looked and I didn't see that any, they have, I don't think they have any songs written for Rahab. <laughs> There's lots of songs written for Abraham. Her identity, it can be summed up in one word. Prostitute. Prostitute. Are there two individuals who could be any more different? Abraham and Rahab? They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. You have Abraham, revered. He's rich. He's a ruler. He's a Hebrew, and he's a man in this culture. Rahab, despised, destitute. She's a pauper. Rahab is a pagan, and she's a woman. I really am appreciating James. You know what he's doing? He's doing the rich man, poor man thing again, right? He keeps doing this in this letter. Because James understands the gospel, and I hope you do too. Some of us... We're especially prone to look down on ourselves, to feel like we're unworthy. And James says, Dear sorry soul, you can never be too far down that the gospel cannot lift you up. In fact, being down actually has its advantages because grace is like water. It always flows downstream. Every time you lift yourself up, you're actually lifting yourself up above the grace line. Look at Rahab, whose bad deeds clearly outweighed her good deeds. And yet she had an active living faith that actually places her in the Hebrews 11 hall of faith. And the Israelite spies showed up in her city. Rahab risks her life in order to save them. She believed in the God who saved Israel from Egypt, and she actually professes faith. You'll find that in Joshua 2.11. But her articulation was not, her articulation, her faith profession, her articulation was not absence of application. Her articulation was not absent of art application because she actually helps these Hebrew spies escape. Could have cost her her life. Her faith profession wasn't absent of faith possession, as we can see by these works. I think she's a perfect complement to Abraham. 
What are the two great commands as we close? What are the two great commands? Love of God, Abraham. Love of neighbor, Rahab. Faith proven to be genuine in works of love. So James concludes with verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Dead. That's kind of chilling. But James and Pastor Joel, we don't want you to miss the point. There is a faith that can look like the real deal, but it's dead. Do you know that there's actually a 153-year-old body that appears to be improving with age? Vladimir Lenin, the Russian communist leader, he died back in 1924. That might not be right about the years old. Joseph Stalin had his body preserved in order to be an icon. Russian scientists, they removed the body from the glass from time to time to work on the cadaver, and they've actually found ways to improve Lenin's appearance over the years. How? By adding plastics and other materials to make Lenin look more lifelike. They're preserving it to show the incorruptibility of the communist system. But the reality is that though Lenin looks more and more alive, he's dead. He can't talk. He can't move. And the atheistic system that his cadaver represents is likewise a way to death. So as we leave here, let us be looking to how the Spirit is prompting us to put legs on our profession by loving God and neighbor in active works, even risky works that stretch our faith and prove it is real in a dying world. William Booth, the Salvation Army of the Salvation Army, he founded it. He wonderfully put it this way. I love this. Faith and work should travel side by side, step after step, like the legs of a person walking. First faith, then works, then faith again, then works, until they can scarcely distinguish which is one and which is the other. Isn't that great? And you know, I'll conclude with Luther. Actually, he understood it, even though he struggled with James. This is from my Luther commentary on Romans. Listen to what Luther says. Faith is a divine work in us. It changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. It kills the old Adam and makes altogether different people in heart and spirit and mind and power. And it brings with it the Holy Spirit. Here it is. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question arises, it has already done them and is always doing at the doing of them. Luther understood it. Let us pray to God that we'll understand it too. May we have such a busy, active faith here at Heart City Church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for James. Thank you that in your wise providence, he wrote this letter that would not only be heard by the 12 dispersions, the 12 tribes of the dispersion in his day, but that it would be heard here in a church building in Elkhart, Indiana, 2,000 years later. Lord, you're at work, and we're wanting you to continue to rend the heavens and come down and make your presence known, and may it be known by the good works that you're calling us to do as we head out of here. 
Father, will you help us to put legs on our faith profession? Help us to keep examining our faith because we want to live in such a way that glorifies our Lord Jesus, who saved us from hell, that we might in fact be made like him and great inheritors of all you've promised. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.